Man, it is so, I am so excited about getting into the Word of God with you this morning. We are looking at Christ being king over the church's fellowship. So we have been looking at the preeminence of Christ in all of life and looking at his lordship over us individually and in our families and the implications on his church. So we've looked at the church's worship and our witness together. This morning we're looking at our church's fellowship. I don't know of a term that's had more damage done to it by Christianese than fellowship. And you guys know what I'm talking about. We have Christian terms for stuff, right? So I could, it's almost like a trivia game. We could say like, instead of lucky, we say blessed, right? And that's a real one, right? Because we don't believe in some kind of like random non-providential action. But you also notice that Christians don't get angry. We get frustrated, right? Um, Instead of praying for safety, Christians pray for traveling mercies. I mean, you just, and the list kind of goes on and on and on. When Christians, you'll notice, don't actually hang out. We just fellowship together. Well, what, and some of those things are true, but one of the unfortunate byproducts of that is when we use the terms for stuff, the shell of it, without the substance, then we lose sight of what it actually means. So Christians have fellowship all the time without ever actually being able to define fellowship. We just think it's when the world hangs out, it's hanging out. And when Christians hang out, it's called fellowship. So I'm really excited to dive into this with you this morning because true biblical fellowship has always been a hallmark or a pillar of the church of Jesus. When the risen Christ ascended to his throne and poured out his spirit on his people, one of the results is that the Spirit miraculously produced the fellowship of the saints. You see this in Acts chapter 2, verse 42. The church devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers. So it featured prominently in a healthy Spirit of God poured out on a people. They gathered together in one of the products of God's presence among his people is fellowship. And so for our study of Christ's lordship and design for fellowship, we're going to be in Paul's letter to Philemon. You may have never even read this letter before. It may seem like a strange place to go to for fellowship, but I'm extra excited about it. So to give you some context of why Paul was writing this letter, Philemon is a godly man. He's got a church Um, that meets in his house. He's known by Paul and others to be a loving man full of faith who refreshes other people's spirits in Christ. Uh, It potentially, the Colossian church met in his house. So he was in Colossae. And so he had a slave or a bondservant named Onesimus who had run away. And potentially had stolen from him and run away. And Onesimus encountered Paul on his fugitive flight. And in encountering Paul, he encountered Christ and his gospel, and he became a new man in Jesus. And so now Paul sends this letter with Onesimus and Tychicus. He's sending this letter with the Colossians. So they're they're traveling with these two scrolls bundled up, Colossians and this letter, and he's sending him back to 
Philemon appealing to him to receive him back with forgiveness, not only as his bondservant, but now as a brother in Christ. I think we have to take a step back and consider why would Paul write this letter to him? If Philemon has a church meeting in his home and he's known for being loving and faith-filled, why even include this letter in the first place? And then on top of that, why would the Holy Spirit of God inspire this letter and now it's included in the canon and has been for the last 2,000 years for the church to learn from together? And one of the reasons, this is not the only reason, but one that I want to propose to you, that's a problem that we have, is that it is possible or even common to have a disconnect from our faith in Christ and His gospel and our grace to each other in our relationships. It's possible to believe one thing on paper and to receive grace from God in the gospel and then not bend that grace outward to each other in horizontal relationship. So even though this church met in Philemon's house, Paul knew the possibility of Philemon reacting or responding to Onesimus' return in maybe what he would say to the Corinthian church in a merely human way, in a fleshly way, in a way that was out of keeping with the gospel of the grace of God to receive him in the flesh rather than according to charity and Christian fellowship. And so with that, I want to dive into the letter to Philemon. Paul writes, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother. So he's writing from jail. To Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, and Aphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and the church in your house. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers. Because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. For I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. Accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, Yet for love's sake, I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for my child, Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. Onesimus means useful, so there's a play on words there of the useful one in name becoming useful indeed. I am sending him back to you, sending my very heart. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel, but I prefer to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness may not be by compulsion but of your own accord. For this perhaps is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a bondservant but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother especially to me, but now much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. So if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, 
charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it. To say nothing of your owing me, even your own self. Yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I write to you knowing that you will do even more than I say. At the same time, prepare a guest room for me, for I am hoping that through your prayers I will be graciously given to you. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends greetings to you, and so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. I want to tell you where we're going from there. I've read the whole letter, and then I want to pray for us as we get started. So it's kind of a big roadmap of where we're going today. It's because believers have fellowship with God in Christ. We must pursue fellowship with one another. This is why. Because we have fellowship with God in Christ, we must then pursue fellowship with one another. Let's pray and ask for God's blessing. Father, Lord, we know that no one can come to Christ unless you draw them. No one can see Christ unless you open the eyes of our heart and grant us the gift of faith. So I pray, Father, right now that you would come by your Spirit and that you would give us a humble faith, uh, a faith that hears your Word, a faith that's eager to appropriate it. God, we know how much easier it is to appreciate truth than it is to apply it. And so I pray, Father, that you would come and, and convict us afresh of the truth of this gospel, but then help us to live out together the implications of this gospel truth with each other in our lives. Lord, would you help us? In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so the first observation from this letter is that we must understand the nature of Christian fellowship. We need to understand the nature of Christian fellowship. Now, at the bottom, fellowship is sharing in something or participating together in something. It's having something in common. So at, at the very bottom, this is what it means, to have something in common with someone else, to share in the same reality or the same experience together. And Christian fellowship is sharing together in Christ, right? It's having friendships and a life together that revolve around who Christ is and what he has done. So Christ, Paul writes to the Colossians, is your life. And if he's your life and he's my life, then we have as our collective life together Christ Jesus himself. And he is the basis for our fellowship. So I want to show you this from Acts chapter 2. And we'll look deeper into the, this nature of Christian fellowship. So that same passage, we already read verse 42. It says, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship. Now the word is koinonia, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together, and they had all things, here it is again, in common. 
And the word's the same as is the word used for fellowship. So I'm just showing you this idea for fellowship and having things in common. It's the same reality. So as we talk about Christians having fellowship together, it has to be rooted in Christ. He is who we have in common together. His redemption is what we have in common together. So look with me at verses 4 through 6 of Philemon again. Paul says, I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. Look at verse 6. I pray that the sharing of your faith. Now, this sharing is the word fellowship. The NASB translates it fellowship. It's, it is you are sharing together in Christ. You are sharing in this common faith together. You participate in the same faith. And I'm praying that this common participation that you have in this faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. So, Paul's praying that Philemon's fellowship or sharing in Christ together with other believers might become effective, which means it's possible that our fellowship or our common sharing in Christ would not be effective, that it would not work. And so he's praying, I'm praying that your fellowship would work, Rivertown. I I want your commonality in Christ and your sharing together in Christ. I want it to go to work. And what do we want it to go to work to do? That together we would have this deeper understanding of who Christ is and what he has done and our common inheritance in him. This is what he's saying. I'm praying that this fellowship of your faith, this common faith would become effective so that you could have this full knowledge. You've got an incomplete knowledge right now of all the good things that are in us as the church for Christ's sake and the way that we will get to a full knowledge and press on into a maturity of knowing Christ more and knowing more fully what he has done is through an effective fellowship together, an effective participation in Christ our fellowship, what we're sharing in, what we have in common, it's in Christ, it's because of Christ, and it's for Christ's sake, is what he says in verse 6. And so, if our fellowship, we've got fellowship halls in churches, probably call the fellowship hall downstairs, right? If you're hanging out in the fellowship hall, but it's not rooted in Christ, the content is not our mutual inheritance in Christ, and we're not sharing in common him as our life together, then it really is just hanging out and not fellowship. So the love that Philemon had for Christ and the faith that he had toward Christ actually served all the saints. The language in verse 5, is, it seems kind of tricky. It talks about the love that he had toward God and toward all the saints and the faith that he had towards God, but it still says, and toward all the saints. So there's kind of this picture, this idea that Philemon's love and faith toward God actually served as a means of love and building up the faith of his brothers and sisters in Christ. That my faith toward God is actually serving you by my example. And as we mutually fellowship in the Lord together, you are stirred up and encouraged by the faith of other believers. And so Paul is commending Philemon, your love and your faith are refreshing the saints. And when I think about it, it brings me great joy. You are modeling what it looks like to have 
a fellowship with other believers that works so that when they're around you, their hearts are refreshed in Christ. Wouldn't that be a great aim for us and for our friendships? Every time you spent time around somebody, they thought, my love toward Christ and my faith in Christ have been stoked and stirred because of the time I spent with you as a friend. So Christian fellowship has to be rooted in Christ for it to even be fellowship at all, but it's also marked by love. With both Paul and Philemon, love for Christ expressed itself in love for people. You see this in verse 7. Paul derived much joy and comfort from Philemon's love and the way that he refreshed others' hearts in Christ. If you don't love people, you could care less what other people's love is doing. Right? I'm happy for you that you love people so much. I could care less. Right? But Paul loved them so much that he's like, I'm getting joy from the way that your love is building up the believers and building up the church. I am refreshed by the way that you refresh others. And so there's this rolling around of this love for each other that's rooted in our common love for the Lord Jesus. In verse 9, he says, I could command you as an apostle, but for love's sake, I prefer to appeal to you as a brother instead. In verse 12, Paul describes Onesimus as his very heart. I'm sending you my very heart. We don't, uh, guys, just as a heads up, ladies, in case you didn't know this, guys usually don't write that to each other. That's not a normal thing to say in a text message. Um, Man, I'm sending you my very heart, unless I was sending a son. And so you can see this familial language, this love that he has toward him as a son in the faith. I'm sending you an expression of my own heart in sending him back to you. But look at verse 17 through 19. We talk about being marked by love. Paul says, if you consider me your partner, never guess what this word is. It's it's the same word for fellowship. If you consider, like, me a fellow, (laughs) but that would sound weird, right? If you consider me someone who has fellowship with you, or we've come to share together in Christ, would be a long form of that. If we have come to share together in Christ, and I'm a brother in Christ, now receive him as you would receive me. And if he has wronged you at all, or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand, I will repay it. Now, What's really important is Paul's writing this from jail. So it's not like Paul's writing this from his Manhattan penthouse where he's like, it's no problem, I got you. If he owes you anything, send it to my people and my people will pay your people, right? He's saying, look, whatever he owes you, I will repay it at great cost to myself. So this fellowship that's marked by love is both familial and it is costly. You can see it's familial because Christ has made believers family. So we have become brothers and sisters in Christ, even more so than our natural brothers and sisters. And if your friendships with Christians don't play that out, then we have work to do in cultivating real friendship, not just brothers and sisters on paper, but actual family because those who hear the word of God and do it are Jesus's mother and brother and sister. And so... We become those who obey Christ together and have the same Father. And so we have this familial love for one another. But you can see it's also costly. Paul's personally 
willing to pay for Onesimus' debt. And it sounds a lot like the parable that Jesus told of the Good Samaritan when he was asked to describe what it means to love your neighbor. And this Samaritan who nobody liked ends up providing for the needs of one who had fallen by the way. And he takes care of his hospital bills and he sets them up and he says, if he has any other needs, send me a bill. That's love. That's, that's wide open, non-protected, non-guarded. I don't know how much this guy owes you, but I'll take care of it. Real biblical love for your neighbor is marked by a willingness to sacrifice yourself for those who participate in Christ with you, right? It's, it's not, I'll love you this far, but no further. It is an availing of myself to you because this is what Christ has done for us. And if you participate in this same Christ, then I belong to you. And at great cost to myself, family, I will love you. So, yes, fellowship is rooted in Christ, marked by love, and then it has to be powered by prayer. Look at Paul saying, this is what I'm, I'm praying for, that your fellowship, this sharing in Christ that you've come to participate in together, I'm praying that it would be effective. Now, again, prayer has probably fallen prey to Christian language. I will pray for you means I'm wishing you good intentions, but I have no intention of actually praying for this. But that's not what Paul's doing here. He's saying, literally, every time I pray, I thank God for you, and I am praying that your fellowship may become effective. Meaning, church, if our fellowship is going to become effective for a greater knowledge of Christ and a greater understanding of what we have come to share in in Him together, if it's actually going to result in us building each other up in love and us having friendships that are united in purpose, intent on the mission that Christ has given us together, where we consider each other as more important than ourselves. I show up here because I love you, not just so that I can get something, so that if I'm feeling satisfied or not in need, then I can just hang out at home, but I'm showing up because I love you. If, if we're going to have that kind of love, that kind of unity that actually builds itself up, then it's going to be a miracle, a miracle. And so we have to pray for it. We have to actually proactively depend on God, not passively depend on God. It means we can say that we depend on God and that we value prayer on paper, but if that doesn't play itself out in our experience, then we are pridefully walking in our own independence while we chase things that are actually more important to us. And so... This is what Paul's saying. We, we have to pray and seek the face of God. God, if our fellowship that you've given us in Christ is going to be effective for us knowing you and growing in you, then it's going to take a miracle. And so we are on our face together to say, God, would you please do this? Would you please? We know that you've promised to build your church, but I don't want to just be an isolated individual. I want to be a friend who builds up other believers in Christ that has a friendship that's rooted in Christ and marked by love and is powered by prayer so that the church builds itself up in love and grows with the growth that comes from God. This is the nature of Christian fellowship. But 
we also must glory in the source of Christian fellowship. I want you guys to lean in on this part, because this is so worshipful and glorious. Paul's appeal to Philemon on Onesimus' behalf, because of their love and fellowship. So Paul has love and fellowship with Philemon, and he's appealing to Philemon on the basis of their relationship in Christ. And he's saying, if you consider me a partner, if you consider me one with whom you have fellowship, then I am asking that you would receive Onesimus like you receive me. That appeal is a picture of Christ's appeal for you to the Father as your great high priest. Christ's own fellowship with the Father is our source of our fellowship with God. And because of that, our fellowship with each other. So, did you hear this? Christ has always been the eternal Son of the Father. They've always enjoyed one nature, always participated in perfect commonality and fellowship in the Spirit. So, God has always enjoyed perfect fellowship within Himself, perfect love, perfect joy, perfect friendship within the three persons of the Godhead. And in the fullness of time, God the Father sent forth God the Son in the power of God the Spirit so that he could redeem for himself a people for his own possession so that Christ would come and give himself in the place of sinners so that we who were far from Christ might actually be brought near and enjoy, listen to this, the same fellowship with God the Father that the eternal Son has always enjoyed. This is the jaw-dropping nature of the gospel. We hated God and ran from Him and were forsaken of God. And Jesus came and on the cross experienced your forsakenness that you deserve for eternity so that you could be reconciled to the Father and enjoy friendship with God that only the Son had known. This is what Paul writes in Colossians chapter 1. You who were once alienated, you were far from God and had no bridge of getting to Him, no way of getting back to Him, a stranger to the life of God. You were hostile in mind. So you were not only far off, you did not want to seek God. You didn't want to turn to God. You didn't want friendship with God. You were doing evil deeds. But He has now reconciled you in his body of flesh by his death on the cross in order that he might present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. This is the wonder of what Christ has done, taking us who are far off and engaged in evil deeds and bringing us near, making us righteous and holy and able to live in the unbroken fellowship with God by his own righteousness. So that now he can say, for all who trust in him, like what Paul said for Onesimus. Father, if you consider me part of your fellowship, receive them as you would receive me. They have wronged you, but charge all that they owe to my account. I will pay for all of it. Not only that, but through Christ, God's word says we have been united with Christ with a covenant oneness. The closest picture that we have to it on the planet is marriage. Two becoming one in a covenant and now being called friends, Jesus said. I, I have called you friends. 
And that friendship language is covenant language. I've brought you in to fellowship with God and have made you a friend of God by my own blood and righteousness. And now you've been brought in and made one with Christ. It's an actual oneness. It's not metaphorical oneness. It's not this, I'm saying one, but what I really mean is really close. He's saying, I've brought you into my fellowship and have brought you into covenant relationship and have declared you a friend. Peter writes that by faith in God's precious and great promises toward us in Christ, we become partakers of the divine nature. You know what that word for partakers is? Fellowship. Participant. He makes you to have in common with God God's own divine nature. Jesus has declared it true over your life and your standing with him. But as you walk with him and grow in him with the church, he imparts to you his own righteousness and conforms you to his image from the inside out so that now you come to have the same nature as God himself as he forms Christ in you and imparts to you his own person and work. You and I in the church are being conformed to the same image from glory to glory. We have this in common. We have the same story in common. We were all alienated from the life of God. We were all hating God and engaged in evil deeds. We've had God open our eyes to the truth of the gospel. We repented and placed our trust in Christ. He made us new creations. He gave us good hope through grace, and now he's conforming us to the same image. We have all that oneness in common because of Christ. So as we're being conformed to him, we have fellowship with God and one another, all of us being partakers of or fellowshippers of his same nature. So knowing that we have fellowship with God, through Christ, and that as we walk with him, we have fellowship with one another, we must pursue the practice of Christian fellowship. We need to understand the nature of Christian fellowship. We've got to glory in the source of that fellowship, and we actually get grafted in to the fellowship that God has in himself from all of eternity, and now we all get to enjoy that same friendship and that same oneness with Christ. And knowing all of that, we must pursue the practice of Christian fellowship. That first looks like receiving each other as Christ has received us. This is what Paul writes to Philemon as a picture of Christ saying this to the Father on our behalf. I want you to receive Onesimus as you would receive me. So Paul says that to Philemon. Christ says that to the Father on your behalf. Receive them, Father, as you would receive me. But surely Christ say this to us of each other. So we know that if you've done it unto the least of these, you've done it unto him. So he looks to his church, says, receive each other as you would receive me. If you have fellowship with me, receive those I receive in shared fellowship. So you can look at Romans 15, verse 5 through 7. You can flip there in your Bible. You can look at it on the screen. It's the same thing Paul writes in his letter to of Romans, verse 5, 
May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another, in accord with Christ Jesus. So harmony, unity, accord, so that together, unity, you may with one voice, unity, glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. What does that unity look like? Therefore, so what I'm blessing you, saying, may God do this in you. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you. What does that welcome look like, friends? A guarded or disinterested greeting? Say hello to each other like Christ has said hello to you? Make sure that you're kind to each other in passing like Christ has been kind to you in passing? Or is it this opening up of your very heart and actually letting people in, receiving them, not because they're so worthy of your friendship or because they're so attractive or because um, they're so easy to talk with or easy to deal with. This is a forbearing with one another and a welcoming of each other like Christ has welcomed us. This is where if, if the source of our fellowship is in the Godhead, this is where the practice of Christian fellowship begins. If we do not welcome each other with grace, then all of our interactions will remain casual and surface level. We'll actually be walking or hiding in darkness. So who doesn't know what this is like? You go into a discipleship group setting, a missional community, or a small group setting, and you bounce along the surface of the Scriptures and you share the Bible with each other without ever actually sharing yourself. There's no actual friendship, no actual fellowship that's personal and welcoming and real because we don't trust each other. We're scared of being judged. We're scared if I confess this or opened up this much, then bad things would happen or I could get hurt. And you could get hurt. But listen to this from 1 John. 1 John 6 and 7, if we say we have fellowship with God while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus His Son cleanses us from all sin. This is describing something that is full of faith and courage, because walking in the light does not just look like walking in moral righteousness. He says, if we walk in the light, the blood of Jesus cleanses us from our sin. We had real sin, we brought it to the light, and He cleansed it. It's talking about the light of openness and honesty, right? Jesus came into the world as light, and for every sinner who comes to Him, He gives them the right to become children of God. But it says that people ran from the light, for fear that their deeds would be exposed, right? If you don't believe what we say every Sunday, that if we confess our sins, that Jesus is faithful to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, what you will do instead is hide. You won't bring your sins to Him, and you certainly won't bring them to one another. But the problem is that James says, confess your sins to one another so that you can receive healing from the Lord. So God's actually designed that vertical healing and cleansing come as we live with a real faith in the grace of God and the gospel. 
And how can I say that I'm really trusting in the grace of God if all of my interaction about my sinfulness is just between me and God? He has designed it so that there would be vulnerability and intimacy among His people who have a common faith in the blood of Christ, a common faith in the grace of God, so that I would know, wow, we have a culture of grace here. So I know that when I bear my soul and confess sins to one another, which is a very non-American, non-New England thing to do, right? We actually come to one another and we bring ourselves into the light. Then it knits us together in close friendship that's rooted in a common forgiveness and a common redemption. So we can actually unwittingly deny the gospel with our lives and our interactions while we call ourselves a church or friends. Because we believe these things on paper. Remember, this is our problem. It's easy and common for us to disconnect our faith in Christ and His gospel and the grace of God that we receive from Christ. It's easy to disconnect that from the grace that we extend to one another in our relationships. And so with our lives and with our friendships, we end up denying the gospel. We end up having surface level or casual friendships that are mainly concerned with protecting ourselves. It is microcosmic pictures of what we said the problem was with the whole SBC scandal. Out of self-protection, we will not disclose this or see it as sinful as it really is, and I think that I can deal with it in-house on my own. And it goes against what God commands us to do with sin. Bring it to Him and bring it to others and watch as He brings you healing and you have friendship and fellowship with one another that's not casual, that's not guarded. Um, You actually come together and offer prayer requests that are more than just things that aren't too personal. If we don't have a culture of grace, we won't confess sin, we won't ask for help, we won't express need or weakness. We won't be able to receive correction or exhortation with humility. We'll posture and self-justify or take things personally. We'll go in expecting to be judged and then at the sight of anybody exhorting or correcting us, then we'll think that that's what's happening and we'll shut down. We need to believe the gospel so deeply that it works itself horizontally in the grace that we extend to one another. And then we need to trust God and take great courage to actually walk in the light with each other so that we can have fellowship with Him and with one another. If we take the grace that we've received in Christ and use it to set the table for our brothers and sisters and welcome them, the real version of them as they really are, then we've got the beginnings of Christian fellowship. We'll see Jesus actually use His gospel and His Word to send forth healing into each other's lives as we receive one another as we've been received by Christ. But it doesn't stop there. We have to press on. This is the last takeaway for us. If we're going to proactively pursue Christian fellowship, we need to receive one another as Christ has received us, and we need to refresh one another as Christ has refreshed us. You can see this kind of language a couple of times in Philemon. He talks about Paul's 
been so blessed by the fact that Philemon's faith and love have refreshed others in Christ as a way of life. But you look at verse 20. Paul says, yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. This ought to be our cry to one another every time we're together. I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. And you ought to hear other believers crying out for it, even if they're not verbally expressing it, that we, when we come together, are made to encourage one another. We have great need of courage. Unbelief plagues everyone at every turn. We have need of our faith being stoked and our hope being stoked in the midst of the great difficulty that it is to follow Christ in our world. Believers around you need to have their hearts refreshed in Christ. And the principle about wealth and giving and supporting those in need applies here, right? There are going to be times when you have great need of refreshment in Christ. And I've been walking with Christ and I'm saturated with the word of Christ dwelling in me richly and I'm able to refresh you with the scriptures and by my own obedience. And then there are other times when I'm in need and you have the well and you can refresh my heart in Christ. But it is crazy to have the fountain of living waters and to have surface level friendships to call ourselves by the name of Christ and to be more concerned with other interests and all of our conversations consisting of other things out of fear. This happens, right? Out of fear that you're going to be that guy or that girl, right? That always is taking the conversation spiritual. That's always pointing things to Christ. That's always taking things to here. Well, let's be those people. I'm not saying that your conversations can only consist of Jesus. What we've been talking about is Christ for all of life. It means that he gives us a host of interests and a host of things to pursue together and a host of uh, real-life scenarios and circumstances. But what I am saying is we have to bring Christ and his gospel into all of it where he actually saturates our conversations and our friendships, where our friendships are marked by being refreshed in Christ. I have friendships in the world and they're just kind of neutral, or they might bring me down. But every time I'm with this brother or with this sister, I walked away, and my heart is refreshed. My faith is renewed, and I want to love Jesus again, and I want to continue going. I want to endure because of their faith or because of their example. This refreshment is the same rest that Christ promises all who come to him. Same word. Come to me. All you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I will give you refreshment for your soul. And so it's on us as believers to help each other to this fountain of living water so that they can find rest for each other's souls. So that means we need to intentionally look for ways to encourage one another with Scripture. Do this. Take what you've been reading in the morning and use it in your conversations during the day. This is, you, we should be coming to God's word for ourselves. But if you keep a lookout for how God would want to use your devotional time to bless other people, it will drive you to the scriptures from the joy of getting to use it in other people's lives. It's amazing 
how God will use daily bread that he gives to you to break off pieces for other people. And so let's be much in the word of God. And like Paul says in Romans 15, these scriptures were written so that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scripture, we might have hope. It's what they're for, endurance and encouragement. So me knowing the scriptures and me being much in them and sharing with you actually leads to your encouragement and your endurance. That's Christian fellowship. It means that we instruct each other in the way that we should go. We should counsel each other. We should let the scriptures be used to exhort, rebuke, encourage, correct. And we receive it with humility when a brother or sister comes to us with correction because we have a culture of grace. And I know that they're after my good in Christ. And then the refreshment you can see from Paul. This is where we'll close. Paul was refreshed by one he had fellowship with when that person obeyed Christ. So we are encouraging one another and refreshing each other with words, but also with our lives as we obey Christ. So Paul's saying, refresh my heart in Christ by obeying Christ in this way. So now my obedience is not just about me. It's not just about my family. It's about the whole body. That God would actually inhibit the growth of the entire church when there's sin in the camp in one of the members. And so the whole body works together to build itself up in love. And my obedience has way bigger implications than just me and my life. That by my example and my obedience to Christ, you guys could be encouraged and refreshed in your faith. Encouraged to continue, to press on, to obey him more, to trust him more. And this ought to be the aim of our lives, to have a Godward life for his sake because he's worthy and for the sake of my neighbor so that by my love to Christ and by my faith in Christ, they could actually have their faith refreshed. They could actually have faith in the gospel restored by my example and confessing my sin before you or to brothers in the church. They could gain courage to actually believe the gospel and believe the grace of God and to be set free from stuff that they've kept hidden all their life long. This is the goodness of grace that rolls around in the church when we believe the gospel and as we pray that what we have in common in Christ might become effective, not just to stay on paper, but might become effective in our experience so that love towards Christ and faith in Christ is the atmosphere that we're swimming in. And, and all of our hearts are refreshed in him as we welcome one another, as we've been welcomed into his own nature by him. So let's pray for that now as we close. Father, how could we express our joy in being invited into the very friendship of God that you have within yourself. Lord, surely there's not one of us in the room that truly grasps the magnitude of what it means that we who deserve the wrath of Almighty God have been brought near and made friends. Lord, I thank you that when you brought us into your fellowship that we share in that fellowship with one another that by virtue of being made sons and daughters of one father, we've actually been made family. God, would you forgive us for ways that our faith in you has been 
only for ourselves or we've had a disconnect from the grace that we've received from you and the, the unforgiveness or the bitterness or the selfishness that can mark our relationships. God, we want to receive one another as we have been received by you. Lord Jesus, if you have forgiven and received my brothers and sisters, then who am I to hold them at arm's length? I pray that our fellowship would be real, that it would be rooted in Christ, and that it would be marked by love that is familial and costly. God, would you give us grace to power it with prayers. Lord, we reject and renounce our own pride and self-sufficiency. We need you if this is going to happen. We want to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, and we want to do it together. We want our friendships to be effective to that great end for the sake of Christ. God, would you do it? Help it to be true of us individually. Help us each to play our part in receiving one another as we've been received in you and being those who refresh other people's hearts in Christ, in word and in deed. God, would you come and produce it in us? In Jesus' name, amen.